Well, it is good to have you here this morning here in Bellingham. Those of you join us in Skagit and the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, those watching online, it's good to have you in the second week of this series uh, called The Path to Happiness. Last week, we talked about a word that Jesus used, the first word he used in his most famous sermon, this makarios, which most frequently is, is translated blessed or blessed, but could just as easily be translated happy. And he gives us kind of this, this you know, way towards this life of happiness. And then we looked at the, the statement that he made about, about happiness, not recorded in any of the Gospels, but Luke records it in Acts, this famous statement that many people didn't know Jesus actually said when he said, it is more makarios, more happy, more blessed to give than to receive and to find the truth that the path to happiness is not in discontentment of greed, of getting more, but the path to happiness is actually in generosity. And so I challenged you last week to do something intentionally in the next seven days, you know, to take a step down that path of generosity. And some of you took me very literally on that, and I'm excited for that. Last Sunday afternoon, I got a text from my friend Grant Fishbook, who's the pastor of the the Bellingham Christ the King. He said, Bob, thanks for whatever you're preaching on. One of the congregants from your church bought my lunch at Red Robin today. So that was that generosity. You're happy. Grant was happy. I'm happy for him. Some generosity was extended to me because of last weekend. Someone gave me this worthless flip phone. I'd rather have a cheeseburger. But at least you're listening And this whole idea, this path to happiness. So we're going to continue on. You, know, you would think that, that in America, we ought to be the most happy people on the face of the earth. Because as we talked about last week, it's woven into very, the framework of our Declaration of Independence that, that, that there's this God-endowed right for the pursuit of happiness. And in addition to the fact that it's part of our, our founding papers, this document, we live in a country where from coast to coast, you can go and you can visit the happiest place on earth in Florida or in California. And last year, 86 million people visited the, the, the magic kingdoms. And of those 86 million people, 1.6 million of them bought the turkey drumstick. That's happiness for everyone except the turkey. Not only that, but in America, for less than $3, you can eat your way into happiness. And McDonald's reports that every single day, every day, 602,000 happy meals are sold and consumed in this nation. We ought to be the happiest people on earth. Last year in 2000, or this year in the 2017 World Happiness Report, which I know you've all perused the statistics and details of that. I didn't even know there was such a thing. In the 2017 World Happiness Report, it is reported that the United States has slipped from the number three spot of the third most happy nation on the planet. Over the last 10 years, we have slipped to number 16 on the list. And they cited different reasons why this slip may have happened, why we are not as happy as a nation as we used to be. One of them I found very interesting was the deterioration or the decline of social structure. With all the social media that has inundated our world, our social structures have actually declined and the increase of corruption, not only in business, but in government. And so it's made us as a whole, as a nation, less happy. I started thinking, what about as an individual? What are those things that take the little needle on the happyometer of our individual lives and drive it down? And sometimes, as you know, it can be something small, a little thing that is not life-altering at all. You spill your coffee, you stain your shirt, you run your nylons, you get a flat tire. These things just take that happy meter a little bit farther down. Get a bill that was unexpected. You know, you have some kind of a, a circumstance or a situation like 
you realize you have to put Christmas lights up again. It can take your happy meter down. But what makes us more acute is when it's not just some circumstance, not some thing, but someone. Someone says something. Someone does something. And it hurts. It wounds. And it takes this happiness from us. Years ago, when I was the, the student ministry pastor at this church, one of the traditions that we had is every August we would take a trip to, to Mexico. And the last year I went was in 93. I'd become the senior pastor, but I said, I want to go to Mexico one more time with the students. And we went to Mexico and we built a house for a, for a family there. And, and then we put on a vacation Bible school for the, the neighborhood children. And there was crafts and there was activities and lessons. And part of it was there was a, a puppet show that we would present. And, um, and I was on the puppet team. You don't know this, but I have mad skills as a puppeteer. And uh, the puppet show was called uh, El Robo Gozo, The Joy Stealer. And I got the lead role as Robogoso. I was the joy stealer. And so I would come up with my puppet, and there'd be some little happy puppet over here playing soccer, and I would come up and I'd say, Yo soy el Robogoso. I am the joy stealer. And I would take a soccer ball, and he'd go crying, and away he'd go. And then some other little puppet would come with their friends, and they're having a good time, and I would show up, Yo soy el Robogoso. And I would take their Jojos, and they would go away crying. And then there's this one little girl puppet. She comes up and she's happy and all this. And I showed up, yo soy a robot ghost. And I couldn't take her joy. So I go, donde esta, donde esta. And then she would respond back, um, yo tengo gusto en mi corazón. Yo tengo un amigo que me llama. El nombre es Jesús. So I've got this joy in my heart and I've got this friend. They call him, his name is Jesus. And I as a robot ghost couldn't take that. And it's true. There's no one or no circumstance that can take the joy of Jesus out of your heart. But the truth is also that you cannot live long enough in this world without encountering the robogoso. Don't show of hands, but some of you have a boss who is the robogoso. You go to work with a great attitude. You're ready to have a good day. You're going to crush it. And they just suck the joy right out of you. Some of you have cantankerous neighbors. And it's just that guy, that lady. That, and they're upset about everybody's kids, everybody's dog, everybody's lawn, everybody's everything. It's just like, relax. And they're just this robo-ghost. They just suck the happiness out. And you might have someone that you don't even know. It might be a, a teller at the bank. It might be a border patrol guy. And it just like sucks the life out of you. And they happen. And sometimes it's not just about a cranky, bad mood, cantankerous neighbor or boss. What makes it really difficult is when it's someone that's very close to you and someone that you love or care about. And it's not just about having a bad day. It's that they've actually taken something from you. And maybe it was infidelity and betrayal, a broken trust, your innocence. Maybe there was some abuse or abandonment. Maybe it was your reputation, a promotion that you were up for, the, the future, some opportunities. And maybe it was something that was taken from someone you loved, that they harmed your spouse or your kids or your parents or a good friend. And in those times when their pain and the wounds and the scars are deep, everything inside of us retaliates with anger, with rage, sometimes with hatred. We find ourselves wanting to, to pay them back, to get revenge, and it can quickly become resentment and bitterness in our soul. And in the emotion of those moments, 
There is nothing, we think, there is nothing that would make us more happy than to pay them back. There's nothing that would make me more, nothing give me more joy than to, to seek revenge or to have them experience the kind of pain and the loss that they've put on to me. And while we think that's going to bring us such incredible happiness, Jesus comes along again with a counterintuitive, seemingly uh, paradoxical message when he says, that is not the path to happiness. Makarios, are you talking about getting even? Seeking revenge? No, no, no. Makarios, blessed, happy are the merciful, he would say in Matthew chapter 5. That's the path to happiness because they will receive mercy. You think it's about this anger and this hatred and this, this bitterness? No, no, no. Makarios, happy, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And inside of us are saying, but they owe us. I don't want to get mad. I want to get even. I want to pay them back. The writer of Proverbs said these words, do not say I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. The wisdom in Solomon and the truth of Jesus is this, that when we go down that path, when we go down the path of vengeance, of anger, of hatred, of resentment, of bitterness, that it will create in us, in our attitudes, it will put in our minds, it will do something to our heart, and we will end up with a life that is planted in toxic soil. And it will destroy us. All the while thinking, this is what I really find satisfying. This will please me. This will bring me happiness. And I ask you, like we did last week, for just a moment, think rationally with me on this. Don't think about yourself because there's too much emotion involved. Think about someone else that you have seen who is filled with bitterness and resentment. They've, they've just got this vendetta. They've got this rage. There's, there's this vengeance within them. They're angry. Think about that person. Are they truly happy? And the answer is no. So now just logically think through. If that doesn't result in happiness for them, what makes me think that that's going to bring happiness for me? And yet in the time, in the moment, we're like, it just, it, that's what we want to do. It feels so good. It feels so right. There's this graphic quote. I, I've, I've given you this years ago from uh, Frederick Buechner, but it's so graphic and so true. I think it worth, is worth uh, repeating. He said, of all the deadly sins, resentment appears to be the most fun. To lick your wounds and savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But then it turns out that what you're eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart, and the skeleton of the feast is you. You start out holding a grudge, but in the end, the grudge holds you. You think this is going to be so satisfying, but you're destroying and devouring your own heart, and at the end of it all, there's a carcass, and it is you. The writer of Hebrews said this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So when you've been hurt, someone's taken something from you, there's a wound, there's a scar, if you allow that bitter root to be planted in toxic soil, it will grow and it will flourish and you will have an incredible garden, the grudge garden. And some of you, the deeper the hurt, the longer you've had it, the more this garden just flourishes. And around the perimeter are the annuals of anger and you don't let them die. Every year you replant them, you come back to it again and again. 
And there, there's the perennials of pain and they just keep coming back. You can't get rid of them. And there are these rows of resentment and they are straight. And you could go and tell every time, every situation, the exact same time, the person, the place, what happened, where you planted that, that root of bitterness of resentment. And then these vines of vengeance just begin to overtake the whole garden. And then at the end of it all, you have this harvest of hatred. It's pretty graphic, but you might have to stop and look in the mirror and say, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? Because of the hurt and the pain and the loss that we want to do this, to have it just overtake and then it overtakes us. I don't know if you've ever thought about um, the fact that, that uh, in the midst of this kind of a flourishing garden, that the more it grows, the more you die. And if we stick to this analogy, this metaphor, the weed and feed is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the thing that will weed out the bitterness, the resentment, and it will feed the future. It'll feed your soul so you can move on to a life of happiness, regardless of what the past was. You know, um, there's a time in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus is preaching or, or talking about reconciling relationships that have been broken when something has been stolen, something is lost, and to bring those relationships back together. And Peter speaks up. You know, sometimes we put Peter as St. Peter over there, Bible guy, whatever. Sometimes we forget that these guys were human beings. Simon Peter had a brother named Andrew. Have you ever stopped and thought, what would it have been like to grow up with Simon as your brother? I mean, if you know his life, he's got no filters. He speaks his mind. He's always very impetuous. I mean, just, and, and they're brothers. So, you know, they fought their whole lives. They know they're Bible guys. They're brothers. They probably grew up fighting each other. Now Jesus calls them both onto his team. I can imagine there were times in those three years where Jesus said, Simon, Andrew, if I have to come back there and sit between you two, you know, like knock it off. You do, go. If I have to stop this donkey, you know, whatever it might be, whatever our parents said to us, you wonder if Jesus had to do that. So this day, I don't know if Simon is recalling something that Andrew has done to him. It ticks him off, bugs him, or if this is rhetorical, it may have been a literal thing. But as Jesus is talking about reconciling relationships, Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? <laughs> Andrew's sitting right there. The disciples are going, oh, would you two just knock it off, give it a rest? I mean, James and John, sons of thunder, at least they can get along. What's up with you guys? Just knock it off. Maybe he's talking about Andrew. Maybe he's talking figuratively. We don't know. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Won't go into all this. We've taught on this before. He's basing this on something out of Amos that talked about forgiving three or four times and what the Pharisees required. So when he says seven, in his mind, he's saying, I am going so far beyond what is expected of anybody. Of course, the Lord will commend me on this one. And many of you know his response, Jesus answered him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, and in some translations, 70 times seven, 490. And those of you who are very much literalist, you are keeping track because that one person that you really don't like, they're at 65 and you're almost there. At 77, you're writing them off. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. I think there's a truth here about forgiveness that we can see. That maybe what Jesus is saying is, listen, if someone sins against you, you need to forgive and forgive and forgive as many times as it takes to make sure that that root of bitterness is eradicated from your heart and that garden dies. It doesn't say that he sinned against him 77 times. It may have been one event. 
And some of you know, some of you who have had deep, deep pains, that forgiveness in those kind of situations is not usually a one and done. Forgiveness is maybe the rest of your life. That's right, I remember. I'm gonna forgive them again. It's an over and over thing. Because I wanna take that garden of grudge and destroy it, take it out of my life. And Jesus just talks about this reconciliation, about making these relationships right, about mending them, about forgiveness. A couple of years ago, in a, uh, a periodical called The Science of Us, there was an article, this was uh, maybe two and a half, three years ago, an article written, 17 things we know about forgiveness. This wasn't a religious uh, Christian article or publication. It was more from a you know, psychologist and scientific way. And I, there was a part of this article that I found very, very fascinating. Now, I, want, I just want to say this right up front. This isn't a joke. I didn't make this up. This is straight out of the periodical. I've even put the source so you can check me on my facts if you want to. It said this, scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates like, and I've been saying this wrong all weekend apparently, bonobos, bonobos, mo monkeys, mountain gorillas, and chimps who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Like they'll say, okay, are we, are we good? Are we good? Can we patch this up? Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates, like goats and hyenas. Now, evolutionary biologists would say, this is how we have evolved to become forgiving people. I look at it and I say, this is how our God creates in these grace notes into even a fallen culture, fallen world, even into the animal kingdom, these pictures of what reconciliation could even look like. It's a beautiful picture. I'm not making any of this up. They go on to say, the only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are Domestic cats. <laughs> cats never forgive. This is scientific. It has been scientifically proven. Cats are the devil. It is better to be a hyena than a cat. Here are these cats. They hold on to bitterness and envy and selfish ambition. I mean, the scientists are proving it. The Bible speaks to it in James chapter 3 when it says, but if you harbor bitter envy, meow, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It is earthly spiritual of the devil. Of the devil. If you don't believe the scientific proof, if you don't believe the word of God, let this speak for yourself, for itself. <laughs> that is not happiness. Is that what you want? Scientists are saying, don't follow the example. The Bible is saying, this is of the devil. <laughs> See, what we need to understand and always remember is this fact, that forgiveness is a decision, not a feeling. It's a choice, not a feeling. Or as I was corrected last night, it's a choice, not a feline. It's a, it's a, a, a volitional, it's a volitional act of our will. It's a decision that we make. You know this is true. If you wait to feel like forgiving before you forgive, you'll probably never forgive anybody. So when we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when something's been taken from us, we have a choice of two paths. 
I can go down this path of vengeance and bitterness and resentment, anger, hatred. Or I can take this path of forgiveness. And again, if you can take the emotion out of it and just look at it logically, you see that one of these paths leads to lasting happiness and freedom. And the other one leads to a, to a banquet where your body is the carcass and your heart has been eaten. And we have to choose. It's not easy, but it is a choice that we can make. Uh, some of you may remember uh, years ago, there was a book that came out, I think in the 70s, uh, called The Hiding Place. It, it was written by Corey Tinboom. And Corey Tinboom and her family were Dutch. They're from Holland. They were, I believe they were, they were watchmakers, Christian family. And during World War II, their family decided to help the Jewish people and save them from the Nazis during the Holocaust. So they would take them into their home, they would hide them, and, and they would help them. Well, this, this knowledge of this came out, and so Corey Tinboom, she and her whole family, her parents and her, her siblings, they were all arrested, and they were sent off to concentration camps. Corey and her sister were kept together, her sister Betsy, but they were sent off together in a concentration camp, so at least they had each other. They were taken from their parents into this concentration camp in a place called Ravenbrook, uh, Germany. And the things that happened in the concentration camp are just appalling, uh, inhumane, humiliating, and especially with the male guards with the women in, in this area. Not, not only that, but there was this starvation, there were flea-infested bunks, I mean, just horrific conditions, and the violence and the torture. In fact, Corey's sister Betsy was beaten by one of the guards and eventually died. After World War II finished, um, Corey Tim Boom was, was released from this concentration camp, and she began speaking and one of the things that she would speak about is forgiveness. And she writes this. She said, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who stood guard in the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying. He was beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sin away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, I who had preached so often to the people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness to give to him. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. Into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that overwhelmed me. It was a choice, not an easy choice. But when she chose to go down that path, something happened within her. It's the path of forgiveness.
And today I want us to take a look at a passage of Scripture out of Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And, um, and as he writes this letter, and, and I love the book of Ephesians. It's beautiful. On the back half of this, in Ephesians, at the end of chapter 3, he prays for these people, this, this beautiful prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with his spirit in your inner being. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is love with Christ and know this love that surpasses knowledge. You be filled to the measure of all the fullness. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Chapter 4, he starts talking about unity in the church. And then halfway through chapter 4, he shifts gears and he starts talking about their new life and how they're not like they were before and how they're not like the culture that they live in, and they're not like some of their friends or even some of their families who have this futility in their thinking and whose hearts have become hardened. But they have experienced the grace and the forgiveness of God, and so they're new people. And he reminds them of this, and he talks to this very subject. Verse 22, he says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. That was then, this is now. That's who you were, this is who you are. Your former way of life to put off, which is a choice. That's not a pray that God does this for you. This is something you choose to do. This is your responsibility. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That old you that is being corrupted, it's being infected. There's, there's this toxicity that's coming because you believe the lies of your feelings. You can't always trust your feelings. They can be deceitful. I mean, you know this in life. If you only did what you felt like doing, your life would be an absolute train wreck. Financially, relationally, physically, and everything. It would be a mess. He says you can't always trust your feelings. And especially some of these feelings. It's from your old self. And then he goes on. You've been taught to be made new in the attitude of your mind. This has taken me from where Jesus found me just as I am to where I will just sh as I shall be someday. There's this ongoing transformation that's happening here. And he says, and it starts right here. That's why in, in, in Romans chapter 12 it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you're here for the Hope series, it's where we talked about cultivating a mind that is dominated by the truth of God's word. He says, you think differently. You see things with a different lens. You have a different perspective. You have a different understanding. You have a different truth. It's different than how you used to think. It's different than how the rest of the world thinks. It's different than even how some of your families think. You are thinking differently now. And it's not just how you think, but that leads to how you live. And to put on, that's another choice, to put on the new self, which I might say is the true self because it's who you were created to be in the first place created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, to have these God-like traits in your life. Now, we could just stop right there and just, again, logically say, okay, <sighs> hatred, bitterness, resentment, anger, are those God-like traits? No. That's not part of this new self that he's creating. And then Paul doesn't. Remember, Paul had been a Pharisee steeped in the Hebrew uh, tradition and in the Hebrew scriptures, would have known them forward and backwards, would have had most of the book of Psalms memorized probably. So he quotes Psalm chapter four. And part of it he quotes word for word, and part of it he kind of summarizes. Let's, let's, let's go there real quick. Psalm chapter four says this. In your anger do not sin, which is interesting to note because it implies 
that it is possible to be angry and not sin. That not all anger is sinful. I mean, think about it. Jesus got angry, right? Okay, read the Bible. It's a really good book. Jesus got angry, right? Yeah, Yeah, but he never sinned. But you have to be honest and you have to be really careful. Because sometimes we say, yeah, I'm angry and this is righteous indignation. We don't even know what that word means, but we like to use it. We heard it sometime. Righteous indignation. Sounds spiritual. It's righteous indignation, but it really might be selfish retaliation. We're just putting a spiritual title on it. So you've got to be careful and honest with this one. But it says, in your anger, do not sin. And when you're on your beds, search your heart and be silent. Now, I know this has never happened to any of you, but let me tell you what I think he's talking about because I've experienced it. You haven't, he and I have. It's when someone has done something to you, they've, it's an injustice, it's a wrong, you've been hurt, you, and you go to bed at night and you can't fall asleep, and so in your mind as you're laying there on your bed, you just replay this scenario again, what they did, and you think about it, and as you're replaying it again and again and again, you get more and more angry, and then you start having this imaginary conversation with this person. You start telling them off, and then you start dreaming about what you wish you would have done in that situation. You would have had the, the, the wherewithal to think about that, or what you would like to do, or what, what you dream of doing, or what you hope God will do, and you have all this stuff going on. And I know you've never experienced this. He and I have. He says, and in those moments when you're lying on your bed and all that seething toxicity is going through your head, stop for a minute and search your heart. Is this who God is creating me to be? Or is this a part of that old self that I'm supposed to be putting off? Which is it going to be? So he quotes this. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Word for word. And then I think he kind of summarizes that. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. You know, this whole going to bed. Don't go to bed fixated on the pain and the loss and the sorrow and all the revenge that you would like to. Don't meditate on that. Don't ruminate on that. Don't dwell on that all night long. Because when you do, you go to bed, and that's the last thing on your mind, and all throughout the night, it allows it to get its talons down into your subconscious mind, and you just dwell on it all night long while you're sleeping. Little sidebar here. This one's for free. This is bonus. This is extra credit. One of the greatest disciplines you can ever have is to go to bed every night meditating, thinking about, quoting Scripture, the truth of God's Word, so that when you drift off to sleep, the last thing that was on your mind was God's truth, and then throughout the night, it goes down into the fertile soil of your subconscious. There, that's free. All right, take that one to bed with you. All right, so he says, do not let the sun go down or you're so angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Like that parasite, don't let him have free passage on your life. He's the enemy of your soul. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy from you. And apparently when we harbor this anger and have all this bitterness, that just puts a little platform and says, hey, devil, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to like totally give my life to you or anything, but here's a little platform. You can put your foot there and just kind of hang on. Just kind of come with me on this journey. Why would we do that? It says, don't give him a platform. Don't give him a chance to ride on your train. Don't give him a foothold. That's like the worst thing you could ever do. And then he talks about talks about how we are to work and do good for one another and how we are to ha- let no unwholesome talk come our mouth, only what is helpful for others that it will benefit those who listen. And then we get down to, to verse 30, and it says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This isn't just between you and that person. 
When you receive the grace and the forgiveness and the new life of Jesus Christ, God put within you his Holy Spirit. Remember in the Hope series, the Holy Spirit is a deposit to guarantee our inheritance, the glorious inheritance in the saints. The Holy Spirit dwells right within you, and what he is doing is his ongoing transformation of taking you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And when you fight against that, you grieve him, you frustrate his work, and that, that passage in Galatians where it talks about the acts of the sinful nature and the, and the fruit of the Spirit, the acts of the sinful nature, he says, are obvious. Things like hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, those kind of things. He says, those frustrate the Holy Spirit's work within you. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things, there is no law. So that's what, Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to work within you. And when you hold on to this bitterness, when you won't release the old, you frustrate, you're fighting against what God is trying to do right within your very own soul. And then he gives them some instructions, very specific. Get rid of all bitterness. Let's stop there for a second. Because our tendency is this. Okay, well, I'll put away this whole revenge and stuff and all that. I'm going to get rid of all that. But I'm just going to hold on to a little bit of bitterness. It's kind of my right. Because everything they took from me, everything they stole, all the pain, I'm going to hold out the right to hold on to a little bit of this bitterness. You know what that's like? That's like going to a doctor, to an oncologist and saying, hey, get most of the cancer, but leave it in one lymph node. Just leave it there. And then it will metastasize throughout my body and it will destroy me. He says, don't do that. This bitterness is a cancer that will eat your soul. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, all the slander, all the things you want to say against this person, and every form of malice, which implies there's more than one. Like this comes in many different shapes and sizes. Malice is, is like a court word, isn't it? I mean, we don't use it much in, in our everyday language. Malice is this intention or desire to inflict injury, harm, and suffering on another person. You say, well, I, that sounds pretty, pretty mean. Tell me you've never had those thoughts in your mind. You say, well, I would never act on them. Every form of malice includes the desire, the thought. So it's just Get rid of all that stuff. And he says, and there's a positive side. Be kind and compassionate. You say, oh, isn't that sweet? That's so soft. That's nice. That is weak. No, it's not. Isn't it true that you can speak very, very tough words of truth and still be kind? Isn't it true that you can hold someone accountable for their actions, hold them responsible for what they've done, and still be compassionate? This isn't weak. It's just doing it as a new creation in Christ. And he says, oh, and yeah, and forgiving each other. Forgiving each other? No. I'll be kind. I'll get rid of that bitterness, but I'm not going to forgive. How could I? Why would I? They don't deserve it. Let me remind you. Forgiveness is not justifying what they did to you. Forgiveness is not saying it was no big deal. It was a big deal. It was wrong. It wounded you. It, there's a scar. You may carry to the grave. It's not just fine rationalized saying that's okay. Forgiveness is not saying you just go on, do whatever you want, trample all over me, I'll have no boundaries. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to release this bitterness and my right to get back at you. And Paul says, and let me remind you of what you've experienced 
and the model and the example that's been set for you and the upper end limit on forgiveness. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. You've been forgiven by God more than you'll ever be required to forgive anybody else. You've experienced his forgiveness. You continue to experience his forgiveness. In the same way, just as, you see that little word? That's the troubling word. The troubling word is as, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's the same word Jesus used in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as, just the same way as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the same word that Paul uses when he writes in the letter of Colossians chapter three. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive, there it is again, as the Lord forgave you. In the same way, this is the forgiveness you experience. This is the forgiveness you live in. This is the forgiveness that sets you free. Freely you've received, freely give that forgiveness to others as well. Because that's the forgiveness that you have received from God. Some of you may remember in the mid-90s, the horrific Rwandan genocide where over a million people were butchered. The, uh, the Hutu tribe was literally with machetes butchering the Tutsi tribe just because. A million people were killed. There was a lady named Immaculate, and she survived that. In fact, she wrote a book called Live to Tell. Her mother and her father and her two brothers were literally butchered with machetes by neighbors and close friends that she had grown up with because they were of the Tutsi tribe. She ran to a pastor, a Christian Hutu pastor, and begged for his help. And he took her into, her, into his home. And for 91 days, while this genocide was, was destroying a million people, she hid in a bathroom that was three feet by four feet and stayed alive. And after it was all over, she has no family. Her country's in absolute ruins. Her future seems absolutely bleak. And I want you to hear about two minutes of her story, and you need to listen closely because she has kind of a heavy Rwandan accent. But listen to her story of forgiveness and redemption. Let's watch this. Every page I opened in the Bible, I felt like it was love your enemies, and I would close the page. No, 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 my enemies are bad. Then I would open another page. Pray for those who persecute you. Oh, God, you don't know those who are persecuting me. They're terrible. Close the page. Forgive those who hate you. How many times? Seven, seven, seven times. I can't even forgive once. And I will close the page. How do you do this? And I started to pray the rosary my father had given me. But it's really, the rosary is like the summary of the Bible. So I was not running away. And I prayed from morning until night because I knew this time God was real. And I remember one part of this prayer that changed me. Our Lord is prayer. What our Lord told us to pray. I remember when I reached this part that said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I couldn't say it. When I was angry, I can still remember my body aching. I was paralyzed. I was a prisoner from my own anger. But when I was able to let go, it felt like freedom. And I remember thinking, 
I wish I can tell everybody that actually it is possible. Before, when I was angry, I thought, how do you forgive somebody who is killing your mom, who is looking for you? It seemed impossible. But it felt like freedom. It felt like peace when it was there. And I'm here to tell everyone, forgiveness is possible. And anger hurts and it paralyzes you. I cannot even imagine what she had to forgive. I mean, I think about the times in my life where I've had to forgive the hurts or the loss. Man, I mean, it's like preschool level compared to that. And yet it's possible. And she says the anger will paralyze you and the freedom that comes from forgiveness. It's a choice you make. Uh, Lewis Smedes um, wrote what I think is one of the best books on forgiveness, save the Bible, called Forgive and Forget. He also wrote another one called The Art of Forgiveness. But in Forgive and Forget, he said this, the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. Now we're free to live. And when everything inside of us, that old side says, no, 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 I don't want to. Why should I? I don't want to let them off. We have to remember, we have to ask ourselves, who is released? Who's going to be released in this? I am. I'm the one that gets set free. Nelson Mandela, after his years in Robben Island in the prison, he wrote this. He said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. May have been freed from that prison, but he would live the rest of his life in prison. And the freedom that comes. I mean, these examples, Corey Ten Boom, Nelson Mandela, Immaculate, they're, they're amazing. But even those, I think, pale in comparison to our Lord. In those familiar words when he's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And I think about Jesus saying these words. And Jesus was completely God, and Jesus was completely human. And on the divine side, I get this. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, you know, full of loving kindness. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who, who forgives all my sins and all my iniquities, washes those all. That's a God thing. That's divine. But the human side of Jesus, I wonder if this... These words were uttered from his human side as well. That Jesus himself says, I refuse. I refuse to go to my grave bitter, cynical, and resentful. And I know the only way is through forgiveness. That example that was set for us. One more quote. Lewis Smead said this. Nothing is more central to Christianity than forgiveness. It is the only way Jesus found to bring good out of a horrible situation. And he invites us to join him in forgiving. Jesus said, this is the path I've walked. Come and join me. This is the path to happiness. Oh, you can go down this path of vengeance and bitterness and resentment, anger, hatred. You can go that way. It'll eat you alive. Come on this path. 
path to forgiveness, of freedom, the path to happiness. Now listen, some of you come in here with deep, deep wounds, scars. I'm not minimizing that. In fact, some of you, it really would probably do you well to get some therapy to help you work through these things, some Christian counseling to talk through. You probably ought to do that. And some of you maybe were wounded as a child and maybe that person is dead and you're saying, what do I do now? You can still release and let that person go. Maybe it's writing a letter and just burning it. I'm not saying that you need to be best buddies. In fact, in some situations, it would probably not be healthy for you to reestablish some of those relationships. But you can still forgive. You said, they don't deserve it, but you know what? You do. You deserve to be set free and to live that life of happiness. So I want to just give you a moment today. Build in just a little bit of moment of a space in your day today. And for some of you, we're just going to have some time where it's just you and the Lord, and maybe there's some things that you need to release. Maybe there's a little bit of bitterness you're still holding on to, and you've got to come back to that. You know, get rid of all bitterness. And maybe there's something that this vengeance, you're going to pay them back, and today you need to just open that hand, and maybe you need to pray like Corey did, Corey Timboom did. Jesus, I don't have the forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I'm not saying this is easy, but this is the path to freedom and to happiness. So a moment, just you and God, and then the team will lead us in the song, and we'll close.